Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast. Hi, this is Małgorzata Bonikowska, your host, and you're listening to episode 84 of Polcast, recorded and produced by me in Toronto. For those of you who don't know, Polcast is the first ever English language podcast not only about Poland, but also about Poles around the world and other people related to Poland. This is not a Wikipedia type of podcast. I share with you stories of people with interesting link to Poland, sometimes most unexpected, like that of my favorite polyglot black friend Moses from Cincinnati, who simply fell in love with the Polish language. Some People are famous and others are not, but each one is special and can serve as inspiration to us all. I'm really happy to inform you that I talked about Polcast in my presentation at the 2021 Polish Institute of Arts and Sciences in Canada's conference and won a prize, which came with a wonderful certificate of excellence, which says... In recognition of the incredible professional contributions you have accomplished as a Polish Canadian. Well, thank you very much, all the organizers. You can watch my presentation and see the beautiful certificate on Polcast website, mypolcast.com. In the previous episode, you met Zygmysiak, a Canadian historian and educator with Polish roots, who has been involved in work with Indigenous people for over half a century. An award-winning author of many books and of the only curriculum guide on First Nations history and culture used in hundreds of schools. We talked about the history and the reasons for establishing residential schools. Today, I'm talking to Anna Paluch, a Polish-Canadian PhD student at Carleton University in Ottawa, who does research on Indigenous culture and who works with Indigenous people, providing support in homeless outreach, shelter client care, and harm reduction. I reach Anya in Ottawa. Can you talk to us about what you do? Yes. Um, so first, I wanted to say that I am uh, calling in from Ottawa, which is on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. And I, for the last about seven years now, have been working for a women's center called Minwashin Lodge and also at the offsite shelter, um, Oshkikizis Lodge. And essentially, um, this... This started from me needing to do a co-op placement during my master's, and now it's gone to me working as a resident support worker at the shelter, doing outreach um, at our storm van, um, and that sort of, and we do also do a drop-in center. So basically, um, my work is very much with helping people who are running away from abusive situations, like mother, women, and children, um, and also outreach to um, community members living on the streets, not just Indigenous, but our, our main priority is to attend to Indigenous uh, people living on the streets. What did you study? I, it's interesting. I actually am an art history major. I'm still doing a PhD in art history, and I'm also now a professor at University of Ottawa, a part-time professor in art history. But the co-op uh, was for my topic in my master's, which was looking at street art and graffiti art made by Indigenous artists and how these sort of accessible street level uh, artistic expressions were great in uh, getting youth to connect back to culture and for getting youth involved in communities. It was recommended to me by a friend of mine to go to Minwashin Lodge because they have these programs where they 
well, now with the coronavirus, we don't have this, but we did have every Tuesday, we had a family night so people could just come and eat a meal. Uh, we also have services to help with um, visitations in case children are in foster care and fighting for families to be reunited. We also have a culture program and that's where I also helped out in. And interestingly enough, by learning beadwork and, and sewing and other cultural things through the culture program, I connected closer to my own Polish heritage. We didn't have this in my Polonia. We didn't have, we only had poetry readings, dances and church. We didn't have anything else. And I was feeling very disconnected. I was told you're not Polish because you can't drink. You're not Polish because <laughs> of this. And then I would go and learn how to do beadwork. And I thought, wait a sec, do we have this? And I would go and do my own research and look at all the Stroje Ludowe and how we have this beadwork. And all of my coworkers were saying, come make pierogi. Our neighbors were Ukrainian or our neighbors were Polish or someone said they had a foster parent that was Ukrainian. And they're like, can you make pierogi? Can you make pierogi? Can you make gawampi? And then I would come in with like a, with the, the scarves, our floral scarves. And someone would say, hey, I have regalia that has that motif. And before you know it, I'm running a pisanki workshop at the Nwashin Lodge. And I have someone coming in to make corn husk dolls with Ukrainian motanka dolls. Oh. How do you manage to get all this done? Because you teach, you do your <laughs> PhD. So how is this organized logistically? To me, it's all connected. When you take art history, a lot of people think, what can you do with an art history degree? People don't realize that in art history, we also learn about politics, history, law, social justice. Sometimes you have to learn about science if you want to know how a certain artwork was made or like techniques. So in art history, you learn to see connections between various areas, various communities. And so to me, it's all connected because by teaching, by teaching about art history, uh, I'm also, you know, expanding the knowledge to students about Indigenous artists. And that helps them, you know, sort of realize, okay, we're on unceded territory. These are these artists. And then if they're curious about how to help more, because I've had friends say, how do I help? Like, how do, how can I participate? And then I tell them in Washington Lodge is always accepting donations. Uh, volunteers, of course, for the shelter, that's specific training. I've just noticed how it's all connected and even just interacting with my coworkers, um, you know, even thinking about maybe one day just making pierogi and just distributing that as well um, in the community or, or in the food banks. Let's talk about the shelter part. The shelter mm -hmm. is, you said, this is not, uh, this is for women and women with children, indigenous women, right? The shelter, yes, only indigenous, but we do not discriminate between status and non-status. But this is really interesting because this is another pretty horrifying distinction that exists yes. in Canada. Can you tell our listeners what is that distinction between status and non-status, Indians or indigenous people? Yes. So this all comes from this document called the Indian Act, and it very much is also steeped in this um, very racist colonial concept of blood quantum, where um, you have to be a certain percentage indigenous to be able to apply for a, a, like a status card. And that status card is essentially your proof that you are indigenous. Uh, it's like an ID card, but it proves your um, connection to a community. And there's some, you know, a lot of people think about these benefits. It, they're not anything bigger like a lot of people will talk about oh you don't have to pay taxes but there's other taxes that people pay the terminology is a bit strange registered indians but people who are indigenous and registered um they are able to benefit on reserve things like housing education they are exempted from federal provincial and territorial taxes in specific situations um so this is more benefits for people who are living on the reservation. If you're living off the reservation, for example, we accept people who are status and non-status in our shelter. Uh, and you know, people who are status or non-status can get housing in Ottawa. But if, for example, I decided I want to live on Kitagon ZB, I can't because first of all, I'm not indigenous, but also I don't have a status card, even if I was indigenous. You know, so some people it's important. It is a document that connects them back to their communities. It allows them to have a say in how their communities are run and what resources their communities are able to, to use. But some people can't get that status. 
I do have a friend who is from Cayendanega, so this is from a Mohawk perspective. And when her grandmother married a, a non-Indigenous man, a white man, she was no longer seen as Indigenous. She lost her status. She lost everything. So her mother didn't have status. But because laws have updated and changed, my friend, who is now a quarter Mohawk, was able to get her status card. But if she had children with her current partner, who isn't Indigenous, her, her children are not able to claim Indigenous um, status or identity, right. even if they were raised in the community. Yeah, interestingly, this Indian Act is the most often modified and updated piece of legislation in Canada. It's, yeah. it's pretty horrifying what it was. I don't think it's ideal now, but still. No. Okay, let's talk about what you come across um, in your work, because I would imagine that what you come across is probably a lot of this intergenerational trauma that mm -hmm. comes from um, residential schools. So with the intergenerational trauma, that uh, was very interesting because I didn't know about that concept until I worked in an Indigenous organization. Um, and then it actually made me realize that there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in the Polish community that people don't talk about. But what I see is, you know, people will think about negative stereotypes um, of Indigenous people, but once you really look at the history and you look at the trauma that's gone through the generations, you begin to understand uh, why, for example, there's um, a crisis with, with uh, substance abuse in certain communities. And there's the issues of, you know, do you stay in your home community on your reservation where there, you know, if you think of Attawapiskat, there was a huge youth suicide crisis. Or do you go to an urban setting where you don't have support, you don't have your family, the language is different, the, the culture is different. People don't realize that within Canada, it's not like it's the same culture where, you know, especially if, if you think of people who are coming from the North, uh, Inuit communities coming to Ottawa, that's a huge culture shock. It's like the same as someone from Poland going to Japan. Like it's a huge, it's, it's that stark of a culture shock. So it's not easy to say that, you know, people should just assimilate or it, it's the same thing. It's like, no, it's, that's, that also plays into this trauma as well with intergenerational trauma, even if people, move from uh, their home communities to urban settings. But going back to residential schools, if you consider the situation of, let's say someone was, as a child, taken forcefully from their home, told that their loving family is evil, that they're speaking the wrong language, they're believing in demons, and then coming back only speaking English or French, only speaking the, a colonial language, telling your family that what they believe is wrong, and not wanting to participate in any traditions. There were cases when, when people would come back and there's just, it's a different family, a different child. It's just not, they're not the same as they were before they went to school. So then how do people who don't know, didn't grow up in a loving environment because of the schools, how do they then raise children or what do they go through? And sometimes there's this, perpetuation where people who went to residential school then put their children into residential school because they thought, well, this is the only way we know. And there's then the whole issues of, of societal racism. You know, sometimes people, they have all this trauma and this baggage. They don't have counseling support. They don't have community support. There was also the 60s scoop and there was forced uh, child services would find any excuse to take children away from families. There was even um, uh, this, uh, this belief that Indigenous uh, fa uh, parents were beating their children because of this. It's called, I believe it's called the Mongolian spot. That's the last name I heard of it. I don't know if there's a more scientific term or a, a different name for it. But um, it's this kind of like bruise-like spot that Indigenous children are just sometimes naturally born with. It's just like a birthmark. It's not a bruise. It's not proof of neglect. Um, but that was proof enough to take children away from families. So. There's also the, the, not just residential school, but there's, if someone didn't go through that, but they went through fo the foster care system, that is also an intergenerational traumatic issue because sometimes those people who went through foster care, they then experience that through their children where their children are taken away. So we, we help people get reunited with their children or we help keep the children in the families by advocating for them. So we do a lot of advocating work. Before marijuana was legal, then if you were caught 
smoking marijuana, uh, that was, you know, enough to take the kids away. It was just anything. They were looking for anything. And then the parents had to jump through so many hoops to get the children back. And and we have specific coworkers who are specifically working with families. So they they connect them with lawyers, with housing workers. They they um, support them in courts if they're trying to get their children back, or if they're trying to fight for custody against abusive um, ex spouses or ex partners. And uh, we also do specific um, parental teachings in a cultural way. Uh, there's the seven grandfather teachings or an elder will come in and, and try to help parents reconnect with culture and, and how to raise children in a cultural way. We have some resources to sometimes teach them how to make uh, traditional regalia for their children. So even if there's a disconnect from all that trauma from residential schools or 60 Scoop, we help the, a newer generation to reconnect culturally. It's been proven uh, through various studies that if you have these cultural uh, spaces or like counselors who are from the community or who are like, for example, indigenous counselors for indigenous clients uh, or, you know, teachings that are more culturally based, that has proven more effective in healing uh, people and healing communities and helping them not pass the trauma because trauma isn't that easy to get over, but uh, to heal from it. How important is culture to um, indigenous people who you come across? Very, very important. I don't want to say life or death because that's very dramatic, but it's it's very important. And like, I understand that from how I felt disconnected and I felt like, who am I in life? And then when I reconnected culturally to like Polonian, like folk art and things like that, then I felt more like I now know who I am as a person. But especially in an indigenous context, I compare it to, imagine if Poland was still under occupation, imagine if it was still cut up three ways and Poles were just living on those lands. Like how important would it be to establish yourself and to keep that, to keep your language, to keep your culture, to keep your rights um, culturally and to connect. For example, you know, we'll have sweat lodges here, we'll have powwows here, we'll have round dances here. And it, it almost feels like when I see people, especially at like the cultural programs where they learn how to beat or they learn how to do something, this also creates a community where maybe someone was alone. I, there were situations where people who just didn't realize they had indigenous ancestry till they were in their 60s or 70s and they come to our center to reconnect. And you just see this change on their face. It's like, it's like they, they found like they're, that they're themselves again. When you're in the community center and you're, cooking traditional food, you're, some people are speaking their languages or learning their languages, they're actively participating in culture. It's, it's like a, a rebirth. It's very healing. And, you know, sometimes in, in counseling sessions, they do have sage to help with smudging. And I've gone through situations where we've all had to smudge as coworkers and it was very calming. It really, it really helped our mindsets. From observation, I have seen a shift in in how culture supports people's healing and and growth and and success. I walked uh, around Toronto recently, and I was really surprised how many murals I see and how many different amazing pieces of art there are with the indigenous theme in them. It's it's interesting because. I come from a very, I guess you could say a traditional field, art history. It's, you think of old European masters, but my own work is very much in sometimes even rejecting gallery spaces because they could be so closed-minded. And so things like murals, in my opinion, are important because it's, a rep it's representation. It's, it's showing uh, Indigenous youth, uh, or not even just youth, just showing anyone who is from an indigenous community, like, look at how you can celebrate your culture in this urban setting. Like, you can have spaces of community and connection. Um, I know in Ottawa, we have a couple of murals by Indigenous artists, and there's one in the market that's um, this beautiful example of, of uh, Inuit art. And it was actually a group of young Inuit students from the North that came down and helped paint it. And it's aesthetically pleasing for the city if you think of it from like an urban planning perspective. But I, I connect back to 
the Polish community to sort of, you know, in a way to connect and and um, and understand each other. So if I walked by a mural with like Polish folk designs, I'd also get a little bit happy. I'd get like, oh, wow, this is nice. So you can only imagine how the representation is, especially if you're on your own traditional lands that's been stolen, that's been changed without your permission, that's um, enforced uh, policies that have taken away your children, your language, your rights, your culture. But now there's this resurgence, there's this regaining of rights. Well, that's, the rights have been there now for a while, but there's this regaining more and more of, of people realizing that you know, this is unceded territory. More places will now say that before opening um, anything like uh, like the schools or or, or conferences uh, or you know certain events. Yeah, I, I do believe that this public presence of art is just another layer of supporting Indigenous representation and really reminding even just other people living in Canada that you know Indigenous people are still here. They're not people that you just see in Westerns um, or in stories that they're, you know, policymakers, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they're working in their communities, they're artists. It's a, it's a very much a, a presence building. From your experience and, and, and being with these people, working with these people, do you, do, do you think that they believe that this reconciliation is sufficient, it's going in the right direction? What are the feelings that you hear? It's sort of like a tired hopefulness where you kind of don't believe it, but you're like, oh, well, maybe something good will happen. It's it's basically just sort of like, well, you know, same old, same old, but let's see how this goes. It's a patient hopefulness, if I if I may use that term instead. It it's not like an excited, like, oh yeah, something's happening. They're doing it. It's more like, well, you know. It's about time, like we've been waiting all these years for this one thing to happen. And so you can only imagine that, you know, how many decades it's taken for example, uh, the, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation to actually become a day. And then some people will use it as a holiday and not as a day to reflect. You know, they take it with a grain of salt. They're like, oh, that's nice. Mm, but what's the catch in a way, if I may say? There's this hesitation to to um, pat people on the back for doing the bare minimum and for taking so long because just my coworkers have known about these things for since they were children, since decades. Like no one's, no one is surprised except for non-Indigenous Canadians that there were bodies found. So the Indigenous people who have been saying it like, no, that's where do you think so-and-so went when they went missing or you know, we, we didn't see this classmate later. I wonder where they went. And then they were never reunited with their family. So you can only assume. And then there were also cases of people witnessing, children were witnessing classmates mm. being put into ovens. So it's, you know, those are bodies that have been found, but there are many more that were, I, I don't even, I don't want to use the word disposed of, but there were many more that are hidden. Like you can't re recover those numbers of those children. And so whatever bodies have been found, you can only imagine how many hundreds more will never be found. Well, let's finish with a little bit of your Polishness. Were you born in, in Canada? No, my parents, they came as refugees, actually. This is something I found out very recently. And my brothers were born in Poland. They were in their they were teenagers when they came, and my brothers have not so much rejected Polishness, but they didn't think it was necessary for their lives. They're just like they've anglicized their names, and then there's me, born in Canada, raised intensively in Polonia. Uh, I did Polish school until grade eight. I was heavily involved in the church. Uh, my parents are still very much involved in the church. If you spoke to me 10 years ago, I would say, if you don't speak Polish, you're not Polish. Now I'm a firm believer that you don't have to speak Polish. You yeah. can call yourself Polish because my nieces are half Polish and don't speak it. But I never would see them as less Polish than me. So my Polishness comes from at first trying to be, trying to prove to people back home that I'm just as Polish as them. And now it's very much a less nationalistic, I would say, um, approach and very much that uh, I see Polishness as a lot more inclusive and 
I myself um, am very much just uh, focused on folk traditions and folk arts. And that's where my Polishness comes from is, is learning about uh, different regional cultures and, and teaching that further here in Polonia. And do you want to share it with other groups? Yes, yes. Actually, there's, um, it's on hiatus now because of my PhD and, and the coronavirus, but my, I started a group with um, a couple of friends. So it was myself and my friend Edita and my friend Shelby, and Edita and I are Polish, Shelby is uh, Mohawk, and we started this little, we call it a festival, it's more like a, a workshop um, event uh, called the Indigenous and Diasporic Friendship Festival. And so through that, I was able to go into Minwashan Lodge and share my Polish culture with Indigenous communities. So the whole point of this festival is to connect with different diasporas and connect with Indigenous communities and have this sort of discussion and partnership. Um, so someone came in to teach about Métis.art, like Christy Belcour is an artist that does that style that's based on Métis beadwork. And then I taught how to make pisanki. And then the participants combined the dot art techniques with pisanki. So there was like Métis pisanki sort of. And yeah, so I, I always love connecting. And one of my coworkers asked me to come in and teach her how to make pierogi because her son is half Polish um, and she's indigenous. And my, my thesis is actually about these connections and about how to make these partnerships um, through visual art, of course. But um, any chance I have, I'm always open to teaching other communities. Um, my husband's Filipino, so we also do our own cross-cultural exchanges. And, um, and that's another community I would love to partner with um, in terms of like maybe some arts and crafts stuff. There are two projects I'm working on that when they become public, I'll share them with you um, that involve the Polish community and indigenous and different indigenous communities um, through craft and folk art. To learn more about Anna Paluch and her work, please visit Polcast website at mypolcast.com. My second guest today is Piotr Surmaczyński, a Poland-born author, playwright, and journalist who lives in London, England. His YouTube channel has gained considerable popularity, not only in Britain, but also all over the world. We talk about his life and work, as well as emigration and his feelings about Poland and being Polish. I reach Piotr in London. You're a proud Londoner. What fascinates you about London? So there is so many reasons to be proud of being Londoner that um, I don't know how to start. It's uh, the most multicultural place I ever seen. Uh, very, very open, uh, very modern, very beautiful, uh, very, very long tradition of culture. Uh, you know, London, there's no place like London. I, I love London. My children were born here in UK, in London. You came in 2004, right after Poland was admitted to the European Union, I understand. That's what, that was the time when you came? No, 2006, a few years later. Oh, okay. Oh. But at least you had that open door that was waiting for you. You could come or you didn't have to, but there was no problem. It was even better because um, I got my job interview in Poland, in Szczecin. Uh, they paid me uh, some money in advance. They bought the ticket, collected me for airport. One week was a training in a luxury hotel. Then they found the, the place for me. Uh, I got the food in the fridge. Uh, the only problem was I was working in the uh, middle of nowhere, in Northeast England, a place called Billingham near Middlesbrough and Newcastle, mm -hmm. but it's smaller than Newcastle, much smaller. I started to uh, uh, write for To Be. It was Polish, but it was printed in Polish and in English. Aim was just uh, to give information for the English people about the Polish people, yeah, about the invaders who came to, to uh, England. So many people moved in that time. I remember it was just more or less million people. Yeah new arrivals uh, everywhere. You can hear the Polish language, um, Polish shops, Polish 
churches, everything, yeah, was Polish. Is that something you were looking for or something you were trying to avoid? Uh, I think we, we've been colonizing, okay? It, it wasn't really even immigration because in that period we've been flying to back to Poland for, for, for weekends, yeah? For hairdresser, dentist and things like that. And you, you could cover the cost of the ticket, everything with packs of cigarettes. I mean, the, the big one, yeah? And, uh, you know, everyone was smuggling everything. Two cartons of cigarettes was enough? Oh, wow. Cigarettes (laughs) was enough. Even now, the ticket costs roughly 15 quid. It's like return ticket to Poland? No, it's one way. One way. Okay. So it's like 30 30 pounds both ways, which is very inexpensive. For example, if you go out in London, you you need to count like 100 quid per head. Well, but London is ridiculously expensive. They pay us better as well. So after Newcastle, you landed in London. How soon? You said Newcastle. Newcastle. Well, I'm sorry. It was not Newcastle. It was that little thing that whose name I already yeah, forgot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Newcastle was a big city in that time for me. You, you know, I was working in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, I started as a support worker and I'm now I'm working as OT. And it was approximately three years. You know, um, it was like immigration after immigration because London is like a different planet. Before the, the Brexit uh, referendum, they made like uh, research. Uh, so in the old union, uh, without the uh, eastern part of EU, the best place for living was London. And none of any other uh, UK cities was included except London. Middlesbrough. Well, it was better probably than than average Polish place, um, but um, it was, for example, much worse than Warsaw. In 2006, I had some family problems. Well, I was divorcing and I just decided I need to change everything. I I was very unhappy and I chose the first uh, job advert in the UK. I, I went to England with no expectation except that I'll be away from Poland, from my old life, old problems, old memories and things like that. I started new life. And in that time, I was working like crazy, making money. Uh, well, now I know that it was just like peanuts. But um, in in that time, you know, after one month, I bought the car, yeah, secondhand, and I rented the flat from, from one, one salary. So it was uh, just like a jump <laughs> financially. Mm-hmm. Then after three years, I just uh, realized that they are they're using me. Yeah, they're paying me peanuts that I expected me to, to, to work until I die. Yeah, I didn't have any social life and things like that. Then after a couple of months, I started to write to this to be to this uh, uh, magazine in Newcastle. I was only working, sleeping, working, sleeping. Yeah, after three years, I decided that. Uh, Billingham, uh, Newcastle is too too little for me, uh, too small for me, and I decided to to, to move to London. I started from Slough, probably the worst choice. Uh, Slough is divided even now for two communities, Pakistani and Polish. Uh, You've got on Main Street Polish shops and the the staffing shops is Pakistani. So it wasn't really London, but I started to go to to London. It was just like 20 minute drive. Now I'm just living, I couldn't say in center, but actually in in quite a a nice place uh, located uh, just like very, very close to to center. So where are you exactly? Canary Wharf. There's so many things you've done. You've written books. You're very much into journalism. When did this start? Uh, well, as I said, I started when I was um, in, in Middlesbrough. Yeah. You know, at the beginning, uh, my interest was completely different. I was writing about the Polish community in UK, about the, the place where I live. My first interest was uh, in journalism was not related to the politics at all, completely. Well, I was writing to the, to, to this magazine to be. I was writing for some uh, Polish magazines as well uh, in Poland, uh, about England. And I decided to to do my PhD uh, in Poland, unfortunately. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't finished yet. There's so many interesting and important things uh, around. 
I remember it was uh, 2010 uh, after this uh, plane crash in, 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 in Russia when President Kaczynski died. I, I was in London. I went to London to stay one day, then fly to Poland, but all the planes have been cancelled because the volcano eruption and also uh, the problem with, with, with this crash in Poland. I went to the theater. I spent all the money which I intended to spend in Poland going to the theater. I spent like three days in West End, so yeah. Extended my, my, my period in the hotel and spent money on West End. And I decided, yeah, I love this place more than, than Billingham, so it's more interesting. And I moved. Um, I, I was hoping that... Um, it will be very easy, but it was extremely difficult. It means that I couldn't find a job. I didn't want to work as a picker and packer, which was easy to get, uh, or, or cleaner or something like that. I wanted to do what I was doing in, in northeast of England. And it took me a couple of months, uh, I mean, three, yeah. Um, there was a moment when uh, I was asking my mom for help. I was just speaking the, the food in internet, and uh, she was paying to keep me alive. <laughs> and oh, suddenly I got the job. And after first week, they paid me like 800 pounds. It was 10 years ago. It was a lot of money. So it was just like click from day to day. I was just begging mommy for cash for food. Then another day, I, I just got really, really good salary, which was like my monthly salary in Northeast of England. So... Um, and since that time, everything was perfect. Yeah, I, I met uh, a beautiful woman. We've got two children now. And just like from day to day, everything changed for better. There's, um, there's your YouTube channel growing and growing. Well, uh, I, I used to study uh, in Poland. Uh, my, my first education is uh, stage management. I was a director of puppet theaters. During the university, I was writing the, some, some text for theater journals in Poland. Then I was working in Gdańsk in very prestigious uh, place called uh, Nadbautyckie Centrum Kultury. So my, my boss was Maciej Nowak. I met a lot of stars of Polish journalists. When I was in uh, Northeast, I heard the story about the couple. Uh, they were from somewhere in, in, in uh, Southeast Poland. They decided to marry, but they didn't have money. So they took a loan, a huge loan, and they made a very, very uh, big wedding party, wedding, everything was perfect, except they didn't have money to pay back the loan. So they went to England. And after a couple of months, uh, they split. They paid back uh, the loan. However, um, they divorced. It was a very sad story. Uh, it was the idea to write a drama about it. That was the beginning. After this, I decided to uh, uh, keep writing. And I, uh, I have written the book called The Horror Island. It's just like six short stories. Uh, where the common plot is just the Polish person coming to UK. After that, I moved to, to London. The, the book was published in Poland. Uh, the, the publisher was just encouraging me to, to keep writing. I have written the book called Pussy. Well, it's not about immigration. It's about growing to be a man. Uh, it was just a bit about me, but not, not exactly. So... Uh, you know, the idea is that some some men are like cats. Yeah, they, they are happy to be with women if the woman is just paying bills for them, taking care like a cat, and they can, you know, go out whenever they want, being like a pussy cat instead of being men. So this pussy is not this part of the body, but... Exactly, I was going to say, that can be very misleading, the title. Yeah, that was the idea, because for the first 100 pages, my intention was... Um, keep secret, don't say that the main character is a real cat. And then there is a moment, uh, I'm, maybe I'm spoiling the book. I uh, think you are. I think you should not say that. When was your YouTube channel born? Technically, it was a long time ago because I, I registered an account in 2009. However, during the uh, lockdown, uh, I was being locked. 
down at home uh, with my wife and two children it was at the beginning it was fantastic then there was a period of watching netflix when we finished netflix we've seen almost everything we started <laughs> to drink alcohol then we just discovered it's a bit too expensive so we started to do youtube channel uh, you know beginning was um uh, working together with ola capsa with the mm-hmm. our radio usa uh, she asked me to uh, to do programs about London every Thursday. I decided that if we have this program, so maybe we can just broadcast this on YouTube. She said, okay. Uh, we started to do it, but it was just very, very basic. At the beginning, it was only voice and the screen uh, with no motion. So then uh, after that, we started to do something more complicated was just like uh, she was sending me uh, mp3 with, with with the recording then i was in front of the camera uh, moving my mouse uh, sometimes it was just putting you know filter in front of my mouse and i was just pretending that i'm live in radio so that was the beginning but it was very boring um, then we started to go out with the camera we started to invest money in microphones all the equipments new new laptop and things like that and suddenly we just discovered that people like our uh, our programs uh, we've got like uh, two formats. One is just called uh, Nasza Emigracja, our immigration. The idea is just showing people in Poland that people which emigrated, they are not only working, washing dishes, but also doing uh, interesting things. And the second is the political commentary, which I'm doing some days. People started requesting topics and um, after seven months we just reached the the level when facebook offered us the possibility of making uh, money so uh, four days already we are making money on youtube Uh, our balance is four pound fifty at the moment (laughs) congratulations during the pandemic and lockdown we just reduced our public activity people knew me you know the the, the community, polish community in london uh, is not uh, so huge it's just like a big village really and people know each other but today it was the first time that people were telling us about our our, our programs on youtube so I, I can't even call it films it was very touching and it gives us a lot of energy and, and encourage us to do more and better it is like a way of life However, uh, it is like a team building activity because um, uh, my seven-year-old son, my 12-year-old daughter, my uh, 25-year-old wife, she's not 25, but she looks like, uh, (laughs) they're supporting me a lot. Uh, You know, when I was doing the program with my wife about her immigration, uh, our 12-year-old daughter was filming us. Yeah, we're doing everything ourselves. So uh, I'm editing, uh, doing uh, programs. Uh, the wife, Monica, she's producer. Today we've been doing casting for, for channel for Alex. So he was just in front of camera. Uh, only one candidate, so he won. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're thinking about just making uh, also some programs for children. Where is your soul? Is it more in that talking about London and talking about immigrants? Because I understand that emigration generally is something that is important to you, that you think that has changed you, but it's changed a lot of people. So you're trying to show successful immigrants or the political thing. Is there one that you feel is closer to your heart? A few days ago, I've been talking about it with one of uh, YouTube producers from from Warsaw. They uh, they offered me help, know-how support from professional company. And um, that was even my conclusion that if you do the political thing, um, it's, life is very short. It's just like news, yeah? Like three days, five days. But when I, I made a program about the uh, deportation of uh, Zemkiewicz, my uh, reach touched the, the, the ceiling. It was amazing for three days but if you're doing things which are important they stay forever we've done the interview with polish priest here in in uk 
some atheist and uh, I, I truly don't believe in God and I don't really like the idea of church and but it was for a nice guy we had a very good uh, conversation uh, we found a lot in common I think that you know Poland is not a place on the map it's far away from here however we all Polish people we have Poland in our hearts yeah we are a little bit like like Jewish people there is a Israel, somewhere in the uh, Middle East. However, uh, you don't need to live in Israel being Jewish, yeah? The same with Polish people. I think that Poland and Israel, uh, the, the Polish and Jewish people, very, very similar, the same culture, similar roots and things like that. Being Polish is just like a part of the person. It's not the most important part of the person. It's like being tall, being short, well, I am Polish, but I feel also British after so many years. Uh, British, Polish, Polish, British, and it's not really important. So I think that what is important is just love, family, and things like that. We put a lot of effort to, to teach uh, children uh, Polish language, yeah? Polish history. Sometimes we even go to Poland. But they also learn Spanish, and they know that they, we are Europeans. Uh, we are Londoners at the same time, so uh, you can be uh, Polish and German. I know that some people cannot believe it is possible. Probably in Canada, you know uh, oh. the best. You can be Canadian and, and Chinese at the same time. Two questions at the end. If you were to take me to your absolutely favorite place in London, where would that be? Canary Wharf. <laughs> that was my very conscious choice. I love this place. It's just like... It's absolutely amazing, perfect, clean, safe, uh, modern, sophisticated. I knew that I wanted to, to live here, and I do. So uh, the Canary Wharf is amazing. Well, it is unreal. Everything is so perfect. Even now that behind this is a lot of, you know, I would even say cruelty and crime because all the money from Nigeria, Russia, China is invested here. So people are nasty in uh, own countries, but they are sending money and children to England. My, my heart belongs a bit also to, 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 to Spain. Okay. I retired one day, probably it will be uh, Puerto de Santiago in Tenerife. It's amazing. Have you done any videos from there for your channel? Yes, when we went to Tidal, it's just a, a very, very high peak, the highest in Spain. It's, uh -huh. uh, it's 5,780. Uh, just a few days before the lockdown, we went to Spain for three days. When you go to Poland now, after having lived in, in Britain for many years, mm -hmm. do you feel people understand you? Or as an emigrant, you think that people view you in a different way that they don't quite they can't connect because you've got a different perspective now on life because of your experience well i think that the, first of all there are a lot of different polands so you can't compare what Karpacie to warsaw or even to gdansk i used to study in Białystok, which is northeast of poland and Białystok was completely different than my my uh, place uh, where I was born, Opole, which was like a different planet. I even can't imagine to move back to Poland. Honestly, the only place uh, where I, because I told you about Spain, but it's like Shangri-La, uh, I'm not sure if we are going to move there. It has a lot of uh, uh, bad points as well. The only place where I was just feeling that I can move from day to day with no problems, it was New York. Probably maybe because New York is very London-like. New York uh, made this impression that from day to day, I can just pack my, uh, if I have a job in New York, so probably I would move to New York. But no, never to Poland. I'm keeping Poland in my heart and it's enough. It's also, it's much, much easier to, uh, to love Poland when you're far away because you don't experience all these problems and things like that. You know, at the beginning, it was a kind of disgrace because I was doing a job which was uh, below my ambitions, uh, expectations. But now just uh, I'm so subtle. And London is just so Polish city in so many aspects. So we've got everything what the Polish people in Poland have. The world is global village now. So um, I made my home in London now and 
probably might, might be Spain, but uh, when I, I'll be very, very old. All right, that's many years from now. Thank you, Piotr. To learn more about Piotr Surmaczyński, please visit our podcast website at mypodcast.com. I'd like to remind you about a daily service that Polcast offers to those of you who are Facebook users. I track everything written about Poland in English, online articles published in many countries by many media outlets, of course, only those that are reliable, so no fake news there. I encourage you to visit our Polcast Facebook page every day. You can find lots of interesting stories there, and you will be able to see what's written about Poland around the world. Polkast and I would appreciate your support, hence the crowdfunding campaign. Thank you to those who are already helping Polkast. Like all other podcasts, this one counts and depends on its listeners. What is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. The server, MailChimp, to send newsletters, equipment, and so on. Would you take me out for a coffee and donut once a month or maybe lunch? If you would, but you cannot because we are too far apart, please support Polcast with the equivalent of that. Go to mypolcast.com support and make a pledge. For a lot of additional information, multimedia links, please visit the website at mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and suggest ideas. For example, if you know of any interesting story that I could cover on podcast, please let me know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And since I live in a bilingual country, we will say goodbye in French. A bientôt.